We have a raging debate in our country on the subject of gender. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? Is there a normal or natural character that is consistent with gender? Is masculinity inherently troublesome? What about toxic masculinity? And what does the Bible have to say on this subject? Today on Craving Answers, Craving God, let's apply a Christian worldview to our discussion about masculinity. I'm Chuck Rathard with Aaron Miller. Aaron is the pastor of St. James Lutheran Church in Glen Carbon, Illinois. Aaron, in your formative years, going from boy to manhood, do you feel like you had a pretty clear understanding about what a man was supposed to be? Uh, probably not an understanding. I, I didn't. I, it's not something I thought about. I, I wasn't really, you know, when I was twelve, trying to figure like what should a man be. Uh, but I was fortunate to have, like I said, I, I didn't understand it at all at the time. Uh, I just took it for granted. But I was fortunate to have two really phenomenal examples of what a man should be in uh, my father and my grandfather, my um, my mother's dad. I, I, did, I never knew my father's dad. He passed away before I was born. But both of those guys, m- my father, who's still, still with us, and um, I sounded horrible, like he's on the edge. He's still alive. <laughs> he's still kicking. And my grandfather passed away about 15 years ago. Both of them... Um, were really genuine, selfless guys. They both, they didn't live for themselves. They lived for, uh, there were things that they loved more than themselves. They loved their families. My dad loves his, my, my dad loves his wife, my mom, and um, my sisters more than he loves himself. Uh, my, my dad, uh, both my dad and my grandfather, and this is one of the great things about uh, Christianity, but both my dad and my grandfather loved Jesus more than they loved themselves. And uh, because of that, that's why I say this is one of the great things about Christianity, is it's it's good for people to see, it's good for people to know people who love something more than themselves, people who don't live for themselves but live for something bigger and better. We're, we're losing that in our postmodern age. Uh, in fact, we're encouraged. We encourage our kids in schools to live for yourself and to you know, take care of number one. And uh, both of those guys didn't. And so I, I grew up with this model of uh, strong men. Both my dad and my grandfather have big personalities, way bigger than mine. I, I'm I'm very, very much an introvert. And my dad and my grandfather are very big personalities, but very selfless and not perfect. I, neither of them are perfect. Both eager to admit when they're wrong and to, to not re, not not resent having to admit that they're wrong, but to learn from it, both loving their friends and their family, like I said, especially Jesus more than themselves. So I, I was really fortunate. I've been really fortunate to have great models of manhood in my life. So you have spoken lovingly about your mother here on our podcast, and now you speak reverently, lovingly about your dad. They obviously modeled some kind of behavior. They set examples which you now find virtuous, which you, I'm thinking probably in your own way, try to emulate. How do you know what they were showing you was the right thing? Your dad was a manly man. 
how do you know that it was right? Obviously, you appreciate it, but how do you know it was right? It did no harm. And I'm not saying he was perfect, but it it benefited. Like both me and my two sisters have really good relationships with our parents now. Both of all three of us will say our lives are way better because of the kind of father we had. And that's that's one sort of pragmatic test strip. But you know, there are people in our culture today whose ears are tuned in such a way that when they hear you or they hear me identifying characteristics about a man, about a father, about a grandfather, which you find productive and educational, those two words understate the, the point, and immediately they want to erase that. No, 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 no. You can't ascribe that to a man. You have to be willing to describe the very same things to your mother or to a woman. And if you begin to, I'll use the word discriminate, well, these are manly characteristics as opposed to these, which are feminine characteristics, they get upset. Well, I, yeah, I'm, we're not even talking about the, the different uh, gender roles right now, except to say if I compliment my father, it's no slight against my mother. Uh, my, my mom did a fantastic job too. I guess all I could say to that is, well, I, I could say this, it's a little snarky, but I could say, this is my reality. You know, I grew up with this man. He loved me. I'm better for it. He cares for me more than he cares for himself. That's my reality. I mean, you can come through with your, you know, with your, with your sort of broad sweeping generalizations about who men and women are, or what gender should be or shouldn't be. But all I know is that in my house when I grew up, it was a good experience and that I'm a better person now than I would be. Uh, that, you know, it, I don't know if anybody, I don't know what healthy person could deny this, that if you have somebody in your life who genuinely loves you more than they love themselves, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. If that person happens to be a man, it's still a good thing. If that person happens to be a woman, that's still a good thing. Genesis 1.27 says, and I'm quoting, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So the Bible says humans exist in two genders because God made them that way. Is that where it stops? Different reproductive equipment, male and female? Or does the Bible teach that a man has a specific role to fulfill and that a woman has a different role to fulfill based on their gender. Yeah, that's actually, uh, Chuck, this is a great place to start. Not stop, but to start. And if I can get a little theological for a few minutes, you know, what that text, and we've talked about this text before in the podcast, but what that text teaches is that God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit want to make man, as as it says in Genesis one twenty six, want to make mankind in our image, plural, our image, and so when God makes humans, he doesn't make one solo person, a man or a woman. He makes a man and a woman. In the image of God, he made them male and female. He made, it says in verse 27. So what's happening there is that God, who's in relationship, the Father is different than the Son. The Son is different than the Spirit. They're three different people. They're one in essence. They're one in power. They're one in might and in glory. 
and yet they are three different people with three different roles. The father's role is different than the son's role. Everybody knows this. Son's role is different than a father's role. God makes humans, and he makes male and female in order to live like he does, to live in relationship. And for there to be a relationship, this difference is vital. And it doesn't mean that every man's the same and every woman's the same, but God has made men and women different as a way to glorify him, as, as a way to be in a relationship where there's diversity and unity together, just like the Trinity. And this is why he's made male and female. Yeah, so it's built into the way he's designed the world. It's part of, actually, it's a part of his own nature. It's a part of his character. Part of us looking like him is that we have different genders. Then comes Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve disobey God, and God announces a curse because of it. As it pertains to Eve, he says to her, quote, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you, unquote. So can we trace our current strife between the sexes to that Genesis 3 moment? Yeah, you can, you can trace the current strife between... Everybody. <laughs> Everybody to that Genesis 3 moment. But that, this is, uh, since it's just one man and one woman in the story, this is where it starts, right? And actually in the Hebrew, uh, it doesn't say to the woman, your desire will be contrary to your husband's. It says your desire will be for your husband. It's not just that she's going to disagree with him. This is true enough that we all disagree with each other. It's that her desire will be to control him and he will control you. So what's pictured there is... Um, and this is actually the this is actually the seedbed of of you can trace a lot of the discussion that happens about gender now back to this point. The problem is is that men and women try to control each other. Men and women fight for power over each other. Ethnic groups fight for power over eth other ethnic groups. Political parties fight for power over other political parties. Countries fight for power over other parties. Um, socioeconomic groups fight for power over other socioeconomic groups. It goes back to this. Once we fell and rebelled against God, we use the gifts that God has given us and the different roles that he's called us to, we use those as tools of power over other people. Men have been guilty of this, of course, historically, of using the, the, the gifts that God has given them as men, not as ways to serve and to love, but as tools to control. And so a lot of times when people um, when people would complain about, you know, toxic masculinity, they're actually onto something. They're actually noticing that this is what happens. Men have fallen. And so their desires to rule over other people and that gets us into trouble. It gets us, it's, it's, um, it's an idolatrous misuse of power and it causes tons of damage. So I'm old enough to remember when I think it was generally true in our American culture that the husband and father was the head of the house. We had TV shows like Father Knows Best. Right. It was just more or less accepted that in the chain of command in the home, it began with dad. And if he was at the top of the chain of command, then that meant he had authority to exert. Right. Um, Parents used to say, mothers used to say to their children, just wait till your father gets home, meaning that she would hand over the discipline issues to him. Right. 
I guess, I guess that's all gone now. But really, for all of human history, males have played that dominant role right. in families and in communities. Uh, the change from that is fairly recent. So were men, that can be abused, I know, but were men properly, in a godly way, exerting the authority as father knows best or head of the household? Or were they sinning, behaving badly because of Genesis 3? Yeah. Sorry, that's a long question. No, no, that's, that's a, it's a, the, the answer is yes, is that um, men have done both. Now, historically, if you look at ancient pagan literature, like if you, if, if you read, you know, uh, Greek literature from the golden era, Homer, Aeschylus, if you, if you look at um, um, descriptions of the way men should be in ancient Rome or ancient Egypt or ancient China, what you'll find out is that men are valued for their strength, not for their mercy. That's not an ancient value. Mercy is not for anybody, really. Uh, not for their humility, but for their strength and for their power. And so if you read stories of, of heroes and you know ancient uh, British uh, literature for, for, from before the Christian era, if you read if you read the Iliad and the Odyssey, what you'll see is that cruelty and barbarism, sheer physical strength, the ability to subjugate and humiliate military and physical opponents, the ability to control women, to have women who have no say in whether they have sexual relationships with you or not. You just they just have to because you're the powerful man. This is what's valued in the ancient world. It is Christianity that brings into the picture the idea of the servant leader, the idea of the leader who sacrifices himself or herself to better others. To the extent that human beings can model this, they can be a father-knows-best kind of father. And this is why father-knows-best work works in the 1950s, not because the 1950s were great. The... the, the um, uh, the, the, the lie was exposed already then, and people were beginning to attack it even then. But there was enough of the Christian worldview left where a father was expected to live not for himself, but for his wife and for his kids. And that sort of that, that sort of man who's strong, but doesn't live for himself, like I was describing my grandfather and father, the, the culture can tolerate that sort of man. What happens though is that, uh, you know, we were told in the 1960s, earlier than that, but it's, it starts to hit the street in the 1960s, that you should live for yourself. And that raises a whole generation of men who are incapable of being selfless servant leaders. And instead, what they do is they use their, 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 their strength or their, their position in the culture. Their masculinity. Their masculinity. They use it to benefit themselves, to make themselves wealthy, to subjugate women, to, uh, you know, children are a nuisance, uh, you know, that's just need to get out of my way, you know, get home, be quiet. Cause I'm going to sit down here and read the newspaper and watch the TV. And our culture is rightful, right, rightfully now pushing back against that model of masculinity. 
where the strong serves himself, and it's his wife's job to cook him the dinner and bring him the paper, keep her mouth shut, go to bed with him. It's the kid's job to like go to your room and you know be be silent, you know be be seen but not heard. And what we're doing is we're pushing against that. And so you look at the you, you look at a show like Father Knows Best, and it's like an SNL skit now, like it's it's a, what men are like that, you know. The men I know are like Homer Simpson. <laughs> you know, that's kind of where we're at. Yeah. It's kind of the goobers who live life kind of follow, you know, ch- chasing one urge after the other, you know, they're, you know, they're looking at porn and they're getting drunk and, you know, they're spread out on the couch on Saturday afternoons, alternating between naps and college football. And they wake up and wonder where dinner's at and get up the next day and do the same thing. And th- that kind of, th- that, that kind of man, I, I, I do believe that, the current attitudes about toxic masculinity are reflecting the evils of that, the, the, the evils that that kind of man does to our culture and to his family and to his friends. So then we have admitted that there are many men, too many men, who use their position of authority culturally or whatever to be abusive, to take advantages that aren't theirs to take. Right. And so the culture reacts against that. I think we used to call that the feminist movement. It was important that women were able to vote. It took a while to get to that outcome, but it was important, and now they can. There are a number of barriers that women could not cross that they now can cross. And on the way to that more or less happy outcome also came a contempt for men, uh, not just to free women up to the freedoms they should enjoy, but now either to punish men or diminish men because they were responsible for the inequities of the past, which I think has produced in our culture a whole host of men who are now discouraged, depressed, demoralized, aimless, don't know what to do next, and... We've talked about the crisis of loneliness on this podcast before. I think a lot of men are in that category for this reason. Yeah. So is it possible to have liberated men and liberated women and living their masculine and feminine lives in happiness, joy, or is that just unreachable? Yeah, uh, no, it's, abs- it's absolutely possible. A um, c- couple comments about what you said there that um, you started off talking about the the feminist movement and the much of what the feminist movement was espousing, like I am for, and the, the subjugation of women by men powerful enough to subjugate women was wrong. Uh, however, if the feminist movement, I, I think it's a mistake for the, if the feminist movement is about you men are ugly louts and jerks and we have the right to be ugly louts and jerks too. That's actually not helpful. It's not helpful if so. So uh, it used to be. I think it used to be back. You know, seventy years ago, eighty years ago, it was kind of halfway. Not not all men were like this, but it was kind of halfway expected that men were going to have their fun on the side. Um, men were going to be. They were going to sleep around on their sowing wives a their bit. wild oats. Sow their wild oats. Women better not. You know. Women better not. You better be a virgin when I marry you, and you better not sleep with anybody else. And that sort of that, that's so destructive. That sort of hypocrisy that men can act that way. Well, the sexual revolution, if it comes along and it says, 
well, hey, women should be able to have their fun too. That's the wrong answer. <laughs> you know, what you're doing is you're saying, well, you're a jerk, so let's us be jerks too. That was, it's created all kinds of evil and bad, bad mental health issues and bad, bad family issues and people who are depressed and lonely because they can no longer form commitments because they've lived life for themselves. If feminism, though, if it says men need to return to the roles that God designed them to be and treat women with respect and dignity to empower women, then that's actually really, really good. And, um, but that's not where we're at right now. And it's, I think it's the Christian church's responsibility to start to advocate for this sort of thing. Let me ask you this. So you're saying that the response to toxic masculinity, which is real, is not toxic femininity. Yes. But that seems to be the direction we we've been headed here for a while. Yeah. So are we just stuck with it? Is there right. a way to reverse it? Yeah. So yeah. Uh, yes, I do. I think there is. One of the steps we have to take is this. Um, we have to believe in original sin again. We gave up on original sin. And what happened was, so, so we don't believe, I'll just to, to make that clear, we don't believe that there's something deep and dark and broken about human beings that's an alien that's unnatural. It's not the way God designed it. And God has a plan to get rid of that, to do surgery on humans, to get rid of that dark, selfish force that we've kind of lost power to since Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And all of us humans are complicit in. The result of that in terms of gender roles is this, is that uh, men, I'm sorry, women look at men acting like louts and jerks. And they don't have a mechanism now outside of Jesus, outside of the Bible, the story of the Bible. They don't have a mechanism to say, oh, I know what's wrong with these men. They're fallen and they're broken. There's something sinful in them that they need to repent of, that they need God to get rid of. Instead, what they do is since they don't believe in sin, they look at men and they say, it's actually something endemic to men. And this isn't this isn't just with, with, with gender roles. This is also... Uh, so, you know, some that this is um, falls under the topic of critical theory, which has come up lately in hot topics. I don't know how much it is, but a couple of years ago, it was all the hot topic. Uh, critical race theory is the same way. It looks at the way that, in, in the West at least, whites have suppressed people of color and oppressed them and used them for economic gain and done their best to control their populations and keep them down. And since they don't have a mechanism to say, that's sinful. It needs to be repented of. They, the only logical conclusion is it has something to do with whiteness. And what I want to say is this, is that the problem is not with masculinity. The problem is with masculine people, men, who are sinful and broken and use their masculinity to well, do harm. Well, that's a really important distinction. Yeah. And so what happens is that instead of saying, so this is why you brought this up earlier, and uh, there are people who are trying to make this point now. Jordan Peterson is one of them. I'm not a huge fan of everything he says, but I do think he's this is the topic itself, the question itself is very helpful that he's brought up. Is the problem men or is the problem sinfulness? I believe that the problem is sinfulness. The problem is not men. If the problem is men, then being a man is the unforgivable sin. 
being the man is the unrepentable, you can't do anything about. And this is why, as you pointed out earlier, Chuck, and you're right, the statistics are showing that men are very discouraged, very depressed about who they are. They, they don't have any role anymore because everything they do, since it's man, mannish, is wrong. Instead, what we should have done is we should have said, the problem isn't men, the problem is sinful men. The problem is men when they sin. Is it bad that men are strong? No, not at all when men use their strength to serve others. Is it bad when men are strong and use their strength to subjugate others for their own benefit? Absolutely. But the problem isn't masculinity. The problem is sinful masculinity. So we need to get back to the story of the Bible and recognize that there are solutions. That, like you, you, This is the original question you had asked. Can men and women love and serve and be happy together? And the answer is yes. So then... I guess this is kind of a problem text in the context of what we're talking about here. We go to Ephesians 5, verse 22 in Ephesians 5 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands. How? As to the Lord. Right. Verse 24 says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to, in everything to their husbands. Those two verses follow verse 50, I'm sorry, verse 21, that says submitting to one another out of reverence for right. Christ. Yeah. There are some men, probably many men, Christian men, who have looked at this as their ticket for telling their wife, what I say is final. This is, this is my ruling on this question. Right. Just bow the knee and we'll move forward. Yes, yeah. Without remembering verse 21, submitting to one another. Right. Can you unpack that in our toxic masculinity culture? Yeah. So, so first of all, um, it's good to, to point out here that, that we've moved into a narrower category here from gender roles in general to husband and wife roles in marriage. So it's not the case that I and some other random woman that I'm friends with or that I know or that is in my community have to submit to each other. It's not her job to submit to me and my job to submit to her. It's within marriage. It's my, me and Angela, it's our calling to submit to each other. Now, it's a, it's a mutual submission. It's not my job. It's not my job to boss her around. It's not her job to boss me around. It's our job to submit to each other. The way that looks as Paul lays it out is different. There are different rules. So the wife is to submit to her husband as to Jesus, like the church submits to Jesus. The way the, hu the husband submits to his wife is, he goes on and says, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So a husband is the head of the wife. Now, you could just stop there and say, like you had said before, some men will say, I'm the head, so we do what I say. But actually, the way he's the head is, he's the head by giving himself up for his wife like Christ gave himself up for the church. That's exactly what Paul says. So submission is selfless, Selflessness, not selfish. Yes. Self-giving, right? Yes, self-denying self for the sake of the other. Yeah, that's a radical assertion. Yeah, you know what's radical about that too is that it's both submission and leadership. It's both submission and leadership simultaneously. And this is why the, the world, if you don't know Jesus, it's just gonna be so hard to get this. Because it doesn't work unless you have the, the centerpiece of this is the God who became a human being to, as he says in Mark chapter 10, the, the, he, Jesus says, I did not come 
to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. So what do gods do? Gods demand sacrifice and service. And this is what bad husbands do. This is what bad men do. But our God becomes a human being, not to demand service, but to give service. Not to demand submission, but to give submission. Not to demand sacrifice, but to sacrifice himself. And what he does is he calls husbands to use their power, like he did, to use use their power not to live for yourself, but to do what's best for your family. And this is, the, this is the crux, the heart of biblical manhood. It's not like doing man stuff like hunting or driving big trucks or you know, playing football. And all those things are fine. And men do those things and they're terrific. There are some men who don't. There are some men who are in a wheelchair. There are some men who are no good at man stuff. Like I'm no good at like working on cars. I'm the worst. Like doing household projects, I botched that up. I replaced, I think maybe I've told you this before, Several years ago, I replaced a faucet in the upstairs bathroom. It took me eight hours to replace a faucet, and when I was done, it leaked everywhere. And I had to get a buddy who was good at plumbing to come in and fix yeah. everything I did. I'm just not good at that stuff. But you know what I can do? I can use my strength to love and defend my family and put my wife first and my kids first. I can use my strength that God has given me to love and serve my female and male friends and put them before myself. And when I do that, I'm being the kind of man that God created. I'm being a man like Jesus by putting others first and by submitting to my wife and to serving and loving my friends by with my strength by putting them first. It would seem that when toxic masculinity and toxic femininity encounter one another, there's almost no hope for a productive relationship no. to come out of that. No leaving lots and lots of isolated and unhappy people, which apparently is exactly what we have in our culture now. Yeah. So what does the Word of God, using Ephesians 5 here as a kind of a jumping off place, in general, what does the Word of God have to say to these lonely, uh, depressed men and women? Yeah, so, so if we if we use Jesus as the jumping off place and Ephesians 5 as the landing place, what it says is that who you are has value. Your gender has value. It's not something random. It's not something accidental to who you are. It's a part of who God created you to be. And to lean into that, to lean into the gifts that God has given you, and know that they're there because God loves you. He wants you to enjoy them, A. B, he wants the people in your life to be loved and served by those. You know what's toxic is the Genesis 3, the Adam and Eve thing, is that, like you quoted this earlier, her desire is going to be to control her husband. His desire is going to be to control his wife. That's toxic. But if we lean into our femininity and our masculinity as gifts used to complement and to serve each other and to make much of each other, life can be really good. Like I just could tell you from experience that when I'm a jerk, my wife and my kids are not happy. When I love and when I put them first, they're happy. And when they're happy, it makes me happy. And when we're all happy together, it's a good thing. But when I use my masculinity to control and to oppress and to, uh, to, to you know to take decision-making away from my wife, to say, I'm going to decide what to do here. Instead of saying, how can I, Angela, how can I empower you to make good decisions? How can I make you, how can I serve you and love you in a way that helps you make good decisions that, that, that you're happy with? 
When I do that, she's happy and fulfilled. When not, she's lonely and empty. I'm lonely and empty when she does the same to me. If I don't want to be lonely and empty, ironically, perhaps, not, not, not intuitively, perhaps, I'm going to have to give myself up and love and serve her. And when I do, I find out that I'm actually fulfilled and happy. So as we wind things up here, in order to stay consistent with the theme of this program, let's just talk to a man yeah. in this moment. A man who has come to the conclusion one way or another that the Bible and you as a pastor, a proclaimer of biblical things, you are on board with this submit to your own husband's language here. You are one of the chief parts of the problem here, why men are oppressive to women. And now you come along today on the podcast saying, no, actually, the Word of God is your ticket out of this toxic situation. Right. And they can't compute that. Their impression of you is you're the problem. And it's hard for them to come to the perspective that, no, maybe you're offering a really credible solution. How do you cover that ground? Well, say, I, first, I'll, first of all, I would say, yeah, I am the problem. I'm a man who uses this power unrighteously at times, and I need to repent and change. I, I, I can't change being a man. The problem isn't the fact that I'm a man. The problem isn't masculinity. The problem is sinfulness. You're right. I need to repent of that. To the extent that I love and serve my wife, I'm doing what God has called me to do. If people can't understand that, if they can't see, like, well, how does that, that's not even possible. How can you be masculine and a manly man and it be a good thing? All I could say is we got to go back and look at Jesus. Jesus did this. Jesus was a powerful man. Jesus was the kind of man who would walk into a temple courtyard full of people and physically shut the place down because it was offensive to God, to, to his father. And he did that. But he also was gentle. He didn't, uh, um, a smoldering wick he would never snuff, the book of Isaiah says. A bruised reed he wouldn't break. He, he, he loved children. He was meek and he was mild at the same time as being this powerful, manly man. And the way he made it work was by saying, to the extent that I have power, she was God. He is God, I should say. He's got all the power in the world. To the extent that I have power, I will use that not to be served, but to serve. And so, A, I would say you got to go look at Jesus. Read the Bible. Look at who this who this was and is. Look at him as the one hope of humanity. And then I would say, get yourself into a relationship with guys who are working on this, with guys who are manly men, who work hard and who take care of their property and who work out and they're physically strong. And But th th there are these guys out there. I know lots of them, but who love their wives more than themselves, who love their friends, their female and their male friends more than themselves, who love their kids more than themselves. Go get yourself involved with their life. Stop living in the rhetoric and go meet real people who are who are masculine but are sacrificially and self selflessly masculine. And that's probably the way to, to, to understand that this is possible, that, that, that men can be strong men and at the same time good men. I would encourage the man who is listening to us, who maybe the man listening to us today loves Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, to look at that through the lens of verse 25, husbands, 
love your wives as Christ loved the church, ask yourself if you're doing that, and then go back and reevaluate verse 22 about submission. It's good, yeah. All right. Here on Craving Answers, Craving God, we hope to be a source of encouragement in these troubled times. That encouragement comes from the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word. Today's topic was submitted by a listener. If you would like to contact us, simply send an email to cacg at stjamesglencarbon.org. For Pastor Aaron Miller, our production manager, Larry O'Leary, I'm Chuck Rather.